Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. Open our mind and our heart that we might understand, so that we will turn to you and live. Well, I am excited this morning to introduce you to a friend of mine. Uh, My friend has been dead for a really long time, uh, since the 14th century, um, uh, and yet, uh, she is, uh, has been a traveling companion of mine over the last eight years. Uh, a few weeks ago, I mentioned at the beginning of Easter that we, uh, as a community, have intentionally placed ourselves in what we call the eternal year of the sacred calendar, a way of marking time through the story of Jesus. It's one of the reasons why, again, we celebrate Easter for 50 days and not just one Sunday. Uh, and along the way, not only are these, there are these large seasons, but along the way, there are what we call feast days. There are days marked aside for special events in the life of Jesus. In a few weeks, we'll celebrate uh, the Ascension. We'll celebrate Pentecost. But there's also uh, days that are marked aside for saints. Uh, and today is one of those days where one of those feast days lines up perfectly with a Sunday. Today, May 8th, is the feast day for uh, Julian of Norwich. And so we're going to spend time reflecting on someone who has become a traveling companion of mine. And before we get there, though, I want to talk about, and we talked a little bit about this during All Saints Day, which is another feast day in our calendar, of why we actually need saints. And I think in this moment, more than ever, in a moment where uh, most of uh, what captures our imagination are things like uh, triumphal, um, conquering heroes, I think us, the church, is so desperately in need of saints. Saints are women and men who we celebrate Because their lives are caught up in the great cloud of witnesses of which your life belongs. And they bear witness to what Rowan Williams has called God's believability. Uh, St. Augustine um, oftentimes talked, and there's a Latin phrase, and I'll probably butcher it, so I'm not even going to go there. uh, That if you want to get to know Jesus, you need to get to know what he called the total Jesus. We talk about Jesus as head, but there must also be time spent with his body which is you and me, but it's also the saints, the women, the men, the children who have belonged to our story before we ever arrived. And there are a lot of saints. It's one of the reasons why I love uh, the Celtic Christian tradition, because they were like Oprah when it came to sainthood. They were like, Cena, you want to be a saint? Saint. Nathan, saint? Saint. Ben, no, we're still making you a saint. You're going to be the saint of the people who don't want to be saints. Like the Celtics were just like, who wants to be a saint? There's like a saint for every single day in the Celtic calendar. And I think this is important. Rowan Williams goes on uh, to say after talking about saints are the ones who bear witness to God's believability. He goes on to say, and I agree, that being a saint is the ordinary goal of the Christian life. In fact, French novelist Leon Blois says, the only real sadness, the only real failure, the only great tragedy in life is to not become a saint, unquote. We don't look at the saints as women and men who somehow rised above what it means to be human, but rather they were women and they were men who we imitate as they imitated Jesus in the midst of actual lived experiences that oftentimes echo our own. And I think we so desperately need the stories of saints because they reorient us to an accurate picture of what the good life is between Eden and the new creation. 
That life is a life equal measure of pain and pleasure, of cruelty and creativity, of brutality and of beauty, moments of desolation and moments of consolation. But they also are often asking the questions we're asking. Questions like, how should the people of God respond to the current moment? Where is God in the midst of all of this? And with that, my friend and my fellow pilgrim, Julian. We didn't pick just, you know, it's Mother's Day, so here's a picture of a random woman statue. No, this is actually a uh, statue that is carved on the side of a cathedral of Julian, and she's actually holding uh, what she is most often known for, which is the revelations of divine love. She was the first female author in the English language. She experienced for 10 hours this conversation, this vision with Jesus, where she's processing some of these questions. She would go on to write a shorter volume and a larger volume because she would spend um, close to 30 years reflecting on this 10-hour conversation. She would give her life to it. But having introduced the saints a little bit about Julian's context, uh, Julian was born in the 14th century. She was born on the tail end of the Hundred-Year War between England and France. So she's, she's born into a nation that knows only what it is to be at war. And she's born right in the midst of the Black Plague. Uh, she is from Norwich, uh, which was the second city largest uh, next to only London. And during the time of the Black Plague, especially in the earliest days, uh, Norwich was actually protected from much of the fallout. It was a very wealthy city. So oftentimes would go untouched by what was happening, but it was a city whose wealth was rooted in trade. And if you know anything about the Black Plague, you know how it got there, which was through rats. And so eventually the trading routes that would come through Norwich eventually brought through it rats. And Norwich was devastated. Three out of every four people died. In fact, most Julian scholars believe um, at the time that she has these visions at the age of 30, she's living with her mother. There's no mention of a father, of a husband, or children. And most Julian scholars believe because all of them would have been killed by the plague. During her lifetime, there are six waves. At the ages of 6, 19, 27, 33, 41, and 49, the plague enters into Norwich. Three out of every four people are killed. Julian is a devout follower of Jesus. And in the midst of this, at the age of 30, she's experiencing two very different messages from the church, very similar to what we experienced in the early days of the pandemic. There were, there were some in the church, in fact, the vast majority of the church was saying, this is the day of Noah. God's judgment has arrived. He is angry, burning with wrath, and come to kill you. That is the reason why you have the plague. But there were others. In fact, Norwich was known for a number of Franciscan monks who were traveling through and saying, nope, there's a different story. There's a truer story. God is the God of love. God did not sin this, but God is present with us in the midst of it. And so Julian is hearing these two messages. She's living in a moment that is full. All the world has ever known is war and plague and immense fear. The church is divided. And out of this experience, Julian has questions. And she doesn't have questions for the church. She has questions for God. Here are these questions. Where are you? Where are you? Do you even care what's happening in your world? Julian was deeply afraid of death. God, where are you? Is this you? 
And these questions form the heart of an intimate conversation between her and Jesus that we receive in written form called the showings or the revelations of divine love. You can find these for free online. I mentioned she's the first female author in the English language, and reading these showings is like sitting in on an intimate conversation, which is one of the reasons why I love her so deeply. One of the reasons why she's been a traveling companion of mine for almost a decade is because she's asking the questions I ask most often. Her dismay is my dismay, right? She's the, y'all, I'm not making, this is not a joke. She is the patron saint of the anxious. (laughs) My saint. Every time she asks a question, I go, me too. And she doesn't even with Jesus, who, as you read the showings, is incredibly gentle and incredibly patient for 10 hours. Just gentle answering her questions. She doesn't let Jesus off the hook. She won't accept simple answers, even from the word made flesh. And so with that, let's spend a few minutes talking about her visions. When she was 30, she fell ill. They're not sure if it was the plague or not, but she was so sick, much like, and can you imagine uh, uh, the Bible actually going in Greek, Dorcas, which at that time, right, being called a dork probably wasn't a bad thing. But even in our Acts reading today, there's this moment that she is lying on her deathbed. Well, Julian was much in the same place. A priest was called, and the priest would walk through the town ringing a bell. It's how everyone knew that someone was going to die. And so he comes in to give Julian her last rites, and he holds a crucifix over her head, and he waits. Nothing keeps holding it, but Julian just doesn't die. And so eventually he gets news that someone else is dying. So he lays the cross next to the bed and says, I'll be back and leaves. And at this point, Julian turns, looks at the cross and in her mind, in the, in, in her mind's eye, this crucifix begins to come alive and begin to move. And uh, there's this vision in this moment. Jesus isn't saying anything. He's just old, he's holding eye contact with her as the life is drained out of him. Imagine like a grape being drained into a raisin. And at the very end, when this body of Jesus is wrinkled and gone, he finally speaks in his first words. And throughout it, he calls her dear one. But his first words to her are, if this would not have been enough, I would have suffered more for you. If this would not have been enough, I would have suffered more for you. Many of us know Julian, whether you recognize that it's her or not, from her phrase, all shall be well. All shall be well. All manners of things shall be well. Put that on a coffee mug or in calligraphy up on your wall. But this question for her, this is a question for her. Will it all be well? similar to the interaction today with the Samaritan woman in the gospel reading with Jesus. And she goes on to question this, and again, it becomes the beginning of a 10-hour conversation. Julian responds, the only way you can say that it is, that it is you um, is if you're actually not paying attention. The world is suffering, and everyone is saying it is coming from you, God. Isolated and in despair, Julian asks the question, are you doing this to us? Jesus' response is, this is not me. I love you. When I died, I absorbed all of this into myself, all that they are attributing to the wrath of God. You watched me draw in, and that takes care of it. And Julian was like, oh, well, why didn't you say so? And she gets up and goes, right? No. 
Julian actually goes, no, 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 that doesn't take care of it. Look at all that's happening. If you knew what was going to happen, you could have stopped it. Why did you let it happen? Julian, every single time Jesus gives her a response, keeps pulling her down, and Jesus gently and graciously keeps pulling her up. And in order to draw her up uh, and to help her see how his resurrection changes everything, which is why her feast stays in Easter, she, uh, and again, she keeps trying to pull, her, pull him down, and he keeps pulling her up, he gives her four images. The first is of his cross and his sufferings. He says, I've been there. I've suffered with you. I've been to hell, the hell you live in. But there is something bigger and more true that surrounds reality. And she goes, nah, I don't think so. She's unconvinced. And so Jesus again goes, okay, let me give you another one. And again, this is happening all over 10 hours. I have 15 minutes. She's given an image of a hand holding a hazelnut. Hazelnut's really small. He picks up a hazelnut, he encloses it in her hand. He says, this is how I hold all of creation closed in my hand. I have you. Sin is not inevitable. It doesn't get the last word. All will be well. All manner of things shall be well. She goes, nice hazelnut, but nope, still doesn't do it for me. And so he tells her a story of a master and a servant, a servant who loves his master. A servant who's constantly trying to anticipate what the master wants. And so the master gives the servant a job and the servant rushes off eager, but isn't paying attention and falls along the way into a pit. Is at the bottom of the pit, not only physically hurt, but curls up and with guilt and shame begins to shame himself. I should not, if only I'd been paying more attention. I wouldn't be here right now. If only I would have paid more attention. And the guilt and the shame and the things that he's saying to himself drown out that the master has come to find him and is leaning over the corner of the pit going, hey, I'm here. Will you let me help? Doesn't convince her. She replies, why did you not stop this? What if we sin again? How, how come we are not different than we are? Jesus finally says, I think I know how to make you understand. And this is the reason why most, most scholars believe that she has lost children in the plague. Because Jesus' final illustration to her is this. He says to her, Julian, I am like a mother. And you are like a child. And when you are hurt, my heart is moved. I do not want you in your pain to run away. I want you to run to me, to jump in my arms and to let me comfort you and to hold you and to rock you, saying, all will be well, my child, all will be well. That is the heart of the showing. Run to me. You will not find disappointment etched on my face. I will hold you. I will rock you. Say, it will be okay. This too shall pass. I think in the life of Julian, in this interaction, this conversation she has with Jesus, there are two invitations for us as the children of God. 
as the church, the community, God's friends. And the first is an invitation to wrestle with trust. The patient, gentle message given to Julian by God is, I am right here. Look at the view from God's perspective, not from the dump. Hold the dismay lightly and wrestle with me and trust me. Julian writes, God does not will that we busy ourselves greatly about accusing ourselves, nor does he will that we be full of misery about ourselves, for he wills that we quickly attend to him. For he stands all alone for us constantly, sorrow and mourning until we come. And he hastens to take us up to himself, for we are his joy, his delight. And he is our cure and our life. Friends, you are God's joy, his delight. He is your cure and he is your life. This was a, a lifelong wrestle for Julian. 30 years she'll sit with these images. 30 years. So a 15 minute sermon ain't gonna do it. I spent 10 years with her and it's barely scratched the surface. Julian was so immersed in the sufferings, she found herself resistant to Jesus and who could blame her? Jesus doesn't blame her, doesn't shame her, but he meets her. The light that surrounds us cannot be penetrated by evil. We are safe, and Jesus will take as long as he needs and as long as we need to, to bring that into our bones. The first invitation is an invitation to wrestle with trust, but the second invitation is an invitation of place. Dallas Willard uh, said that every single person has a formation. Not just Christian, everyone has a formation. We're all being formed into someone's image. And Julian had a formation. She was formed to become the kind of person, looked, smelled, sounded like Jesus. She knew scripture. She was a person of prayer. One of the most powerful things about the showings is that God meets her in her questions. She'd ask the questions. Um, after this experience she has on her deathbed, she went to the bishop and she asked to be confined in what's called an anchor hold. It's a little room off the side of a church. It's where she would spend the rest of her life. There were two windows in this place. One was a window in which she could participate in worship and Eucharist, but the other window faced the world. And it was actually, for those 30 years, women and men would come and stop by with the same questions Julian had. Where's God? And in patience, the same patience that Jesus showed her, she would say, right here. Julian shows us, as did Jesus, our place in this world as the friends of God. At this table, which is Christ's table, where bread and wine represent and are the body, the blood of Jesus, the God who entered into our sufferings, who is present with us in our sufferings, but then our place is also at other tables, at the table at a coffee shop or the dining room table or our office, toward the world, because this is not for our own sake, but for the sake of the world God loves. A people who aren't just receiving God's hospitality, restoration, shalom, to hold on to it, but turning to that second window, extend it to the world. Not pretending the world is other than it is. Not pretending that we don't have questions and don't have wrestles and struggles, but trusting in the gentle Jesus 
who meets us in that place and out of those questions turns to the world and goes, you are my delight. And I am your life and your cure. That's my friend Julian. The patron saint of the anxious. The one who saw God, saw people, and found in both love and delight in the face of Christ. My friends, my beloved, Christ has died. Christ has risen. And Christ will come again. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.